0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again, our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Thank you for another fun-filled week of talking with some of you guys and meeting people from different parts of the globe. Uh, this continues to be a fascinating journey that I never had envisioned that would take off the way it did. And Julie and I are very humble and grateful for all of your support and... Uh, <clears throat> appreciation and and gratitude uh we're just two people trying to make a difference in a very murky uh complicated field uh to shed some light uh provide you know strong clinical um information strong uh empirical base empirically based information and also years of clinical experience uh to a variety of psychiatric conditions so uh again our gratitude <clears throat> uh, the highlight of my week um i'm not sure if julie will be joining us uh the kids are over for dinner so um i think i'm doing this one on my own all right so in the dsm Um, if you flip to the back, um, there is something that they have in the last several editions, which are conditions for further study. And these include disorders that we typically do not diagnose because they haven't had sufficient research or peer-based empirical studies or peer-reviewed empirical studies, um, but they're interesting, and they generally make their way into the next version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And one I wanted to focus on today, because I have seen enough of this, and I'm sure many clinicians uh, who follow our program can attest to this as well. Uh, again, this is a disorder for further or condition for further study. It is non-suicidal self-injury. And... Uh, obviously, you know, during my structured diagnostic clinical interview, one of the things that I, I, I ask about is, you know, history of suicidal thoughts, uh, any attempts. If there were attempts, what were the plans? If there were no attempts, had you ever come up with a plan? Um, kind of guesstimate lethality, um, homicidal thoughts, homicidal ideations, uh, homicidal attempts, um, and, and self-injurious behaviors. And, you know, I think, I think we've hopefully made some progress with this, but I think people um, a lot of times will hear self-injury and automatically equate it with borderline personality because that is one of the, one of the nine uh, diagnostic criteria for borderline personality is self-injurious behaviors. But only 40% of individuals with borderline personality engage in self-injurious behaviors. So the vast majority of people who engage in self-injurious behaviors do not have borderline personality disorder. And I think people, uh, a lot of clinicians I've seen over the years make a huge leap um, into prematurely diagnosing or kind of putting somebody in this box of borderline pathology because they self-injure. So I do think that this condition for further study, uh, is definitely relevant because, um, you know, 60% of people, non-borderline, engage in self-injurious behavior. So. In the DSM, um, what it basically says is the individual has on five or more days engaged in intentional self-inflicted damage to the surface of his or her body, um, like bleeding, bruising, cutting, stabbing, hitting, excessive rubbing, uh, headbanging, all sorts of things with the expectation that the injury will only lead to minor or moderate physical harm. There is no suicidal intent. Now, it seems like, why would you want to hurt yourself on purpose if you're not looking to escape life? Uh, given that all behavior is purposeful, whether it's adaptive, maladaptive, appropriate, inappropriate, uh we only repeat behaviors if they have what's called valence, if it has value and it's reinforced by our dopaminergic system. So you can look at a behavior and be like, well, it makes sense uh why you, you know, do the Peloton every morning because it feels good. That's an adaptive behavior. It makes you know, releases endorphins and you feel really good. Um but you look at, well, why would you want to punch yourself or, or stab yourself or Cut yourself, um, you know. It seems like almost like that doesn't make any sense. But to the individual who's engaging in this behavior, it makes it makes perfect sense. Um, so it's important to know that the absence of suicidal intent has either been stated by the individual, or can be inferred by the individual's repeated engagement in a behavior that the individual knows or has learned is not likely to result in death. Again, there is no suicidal intent with this specific disorder. And I have worked with a number of people uh, doing diagnostics who have no intention of dying. Uh, And, you know, this even goes beyond attention seeing. This is really a behavior that gives the individual some sense of relief so the individual who engages in the self-injurious behavior is, has, has one or more of ex, expectations uh, to obtain relief from a negative feeling or cognitive state. So a lot of times well, you will know, ask patients is, you know, how do you get rid of a headache? Well, you take aspirin. No, you drop a hammer on your foot. You forget about the pain in your head and you focus on the pain in your foot. So from a psychological psychiatric perspective, you transfer the emotional pain that you perceive that you cannot control to a physical pain that you perceive you can't control. Uh, a second uh, reason someone engage in self-injurious behaviors is to resolve an interpersonal difficulty and... Three, to induce a positive feeling state. So, you know, it may seem ironic, but obviously the the psychological pain an individual is in is too much to bear. So the physical pain becomes the focal point. I'm not intending to die, but I need to. It's almost like a diversion tactic. Um and it's 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 a behavior that you know usually requires you know from a cognitive perspective you know harm reduction and reducing the frequency duration and severity of self injurious behaviors because it can become it's very immediate um, you know so a lot of times with people especially you know younger adolescents and and kids uh, you want to make sure the home is safeguarded you know you know sharp pencils um, pens knives uh, and I've had families who basically have had to live uh, in pretty stark circumstances just to make sure that their child did not have access to anything that could cause them, you know, injury. Um, you know, but, you know, you still have walls in your room and you still have, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of ways that someone could injure themselves. Um, so the desired relief or response is experienced during or shortly after the self-injury and the individuals may display patterns of behavior suggesting a dependence on repeatedly engaging in it again there's your reinforcement there's your there's your dopaminergic reinforcement so the behavior may seem maladaptive may seem bizarre may seem ironic but to the individual it gives them a sense of relief so the intentional self-injury is associated with at least one of the following um Interpersonal difficulties or negative feelings or thoughts such as depression, anxiety, tension, anger, uh, generalized distress, self-criticism occurring in the period immediately prior to the self-injurious act. So these emotions are troubling the individual or these cognitions are troubling the individual prior to them engaging in a self-injurious act. The self-injurious act in and of itself is the mechanism to alleviate the emotional, cognitive, and or both levels of distress. Uh, Prior to engaging in the act, a period of preoccupation with the intended behavior that is difficult to control. So, this is, it, it's not a compulsion. It's, it's the, the urge is, is, is so strong. It compels the individual. Uh, yes. Is a person responsible for the choices that they engage in and the behaviors they engage in? Absolutely. And one of the most fundamental questions that we ask and, and, and we have to ask is why? Why is the crucial variable, especially from a cognitive behavior perspective, and I think from many psychotherapeutic perspective, is why what people do is interesting. Why they do it helps give us answers and insight into the cognitive processes of an individual. Uh, and third, thinking about self-injury that occurs frequently, even when it's not acted upon, so the individual, it, it you know, uh, it's 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 a preoccupation with constantly having this thought. Uh, because they know that the action in and of itself, once they engage in it, will give them desired relief from the distressing emotional and or cognitive state they're in. Um, But an important caveat is the behavior is not socially sanctioned body piercings, tattooing, part of a religious or cultural ritual. Um, And it's not about picking a scab or nail biting. You know, we have a disorder called excoriation disorder, which is skin picking disorder, Uh, trichotillomania, which is pulling out your hair. Those are separate disorders that are in the current diagnostic manual and have been in previous diagnostic manuals. Um, But this is not a, you know, getting tattoos. Now that's a much more adaptive way. And And I worked with a number of people who said, you know, I used to cut But I decided I got the same level of relief from getting tattoos, and a lot of people have covered up scars that they've had in in very visible places with tattoos. Now, I would say that in a much more adaptive way, Uh, body piercings... um, you know, whether that's, you know, piercing your tongue or piercing, you know, getting a labray or ear piercings, uh, it can be, you know, those are more socially acceptable ways or you know, even different cultures, um, you know, may, or, or, you know, have different ways of, um, stretching out their skin or the earlobes and whatnot. So it's not, it's that, that is completely separate in and of itself, um, so the behavior or its consequences cause clinically significant distress or interference in interpersonal academic and other important areas of functioning so i mean if if, it if someone is cutting uh one thing that i always ask is where do you cut uh if you're cutting on your thighs you're cutting on your ankle you don't want someone to know Uh, If you're cutting on your back, uh, under your breast, Uh, but if you're cutting on your forearms, you're cutting on your neck, you're cutting on your wrists, uh, maybe even cutting on a part of your thigh that can be revealed by wearing, you know, shorts or a skirt, Um, oftentimes that the individual who is doing that either wants to show their battle scars or maybe attention-seeking so you know, someone comes into my office in, in 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 July or August, and it's ninety plus degrees out, and they're in a turtleneck and long sleeve shirt and pants and whatever, and I'm asking about self-injurious behaviors. Um, I have found from clinical experience, the again, a vast majority of people are are covering it up. Um, you know they're not willing to and you know admit it because uh, there can be a lot of shame associated with it but it's important in this specific disorder this is again non-suicidal self-injury. there is no intention to, to die um, so it's it, it's it's important in understanding um that this this type of behavior generally starts in early teens and it can continue for years. Um a lot of times the individuals learn this behavior uh on inpatient units and sometimes from partial programs this is really a learned behavior uh you can you can go on youtube you can go on the internet and look at different ways to cut and this is you know the blessing and the curse of 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 the internet and um you know, and a lot of times when individuals, you see it a lot with adolescents, um, you know, how do you deal with ear stress? Well, I cut. Um, and I've heard this uh, ad nauseum from patients that this is very much a learned behavior versus I just wake up a morning and say, you know what? I'm going to start cutting and see what this is all about. Um, this is very much a part of our mainstream culture. Um, because it's been around a while, it's, it's not often very shocking, but I think this disorder is something that is much needed because, uh, again, it, it is a maladaptive behavior, I think, because, I mean, destroying your, your body uh, can be problematic you know, later down the line because society can be very judgmental. Um, You know, if you're going on a job interview and, you know, multiple scars that are there, it's very obvious, you know, on your wrists and whatnot, you know, people don't truly understand the severity and gravity and legitimacy and the integrity of mental health. And again, that was a huge reason for starting this podcast was to give mental health a voice and and a legitimacy. Um, But, you know, we're, we're a judgmental society, and you know we could easily turn our backs on people um without giving them full credit for the, their journeys and what what they have you know been on um so um <clears throat> the the you know in in the in you know the prevalence rates, there's a higher rate of a female to male ratio, about three to one or four to one, um, male to female ratio of, of why individuals engage in this behavior. Um, and there, there's there's two theories of of psychopathology based on, on on functional behavioral analysis that you know kind of try to explain this. And the first one is based on on learning theory, either positive or negative reinforcement, uh, that sustains behavior. So positive reinforcement uh, results from punishing oneself in a way that the individual feels is deserved. And the behavior, the actual uh, self-injurious behavior, um, induces a pleasant and relaxing state or it generates attention and help from a significant other, or is an expression of anger. So again, there's again, there's the why. There's there's the why. Is it to get attention? Is it to get that feeling of release? Is it just an expression of anger that a person is directing inwards? Uh, I mean, I think Freud had something to say when he said depression was anger turned inwards. And I really wish that anger was part of um, one of the criteria for major depressive disorder, because I think a lot of individuals have internalized anger expressed inwards or expressed outwards, but a lot of times the inward anger um, can be projected onto the self in a form of self-injurious behaviors. Uh, Negative reinforcement results from uh, affect regulation, which is like emotional regulation, and the reduction of unpleasant emotions or avoiding distressing thoughts, uh, including thinking about suicide. And in in that second theory of negative reinforcement, non suicidal self injury is thought to be a form of self punishment in which self punitive actions are engaged in to make up for acts that cause distress or harm to others. So it's it's again it's that self punishment. It's being intro punitive. Um, it's going, it's, it's, it's self depreciation. Um, so, you know, the reasons why somebody engaged in this behavior are really important to explore, um, whether you're a clinician, whether you're somebody who is struggling with this or who engages in this, um, or whether you are a family member with a child, adolescent or adult who is engaged in this behavior. I mean, it to kind of think of like. You know, we, I think a lot of times equate self harm with, um, you know, this doesn't occur during a period of psychosis. This doesn't occur during a period of of delirium, uh, substance intoxication, substance withdrawal, uh neurodevelopmental disorder, um, autism, intellectual disability. Uh, like I said, trichotillomania, um, excoriation disorder It doesn't occur during any of these. This is a separate uh, disorder proposed for further review. That I does I do think should be included in the in the next version of the diagnostic manual and is a very viable diagnostic category because of the number of people who do engage in this behavior. They have no intention to die, but they really have a paucity of adaptive coping mechanisms and feel that the only way to, uh, in my experience, what I have found is most people who engage in self-injurious behaviors generally want to transfer the emotional pain to the physical pain. Uh, use it as a form of self punishment. I deserve to hurt because I did something wrong or some perceived transgression, or I feel so numb and I need a release. And uh, that that that's based in research and just based in years of clinical practice. And people, or, or I think a fourth one will be attention seeking uh attention seeking that look, I'm not trying to kill myself, but do you see how much pain I'm in? And that often occurs in families or situations that uh minimize mental health or dismiss mental health or really dismiss you know, somebody just kinda like lost in the crowd saying, Hey look at me, do you see me? I'm kinda lost and, and you know, it could be um you know it's obvious it's definitely a definite way to get someone get someone's attention if they see blood on the ground or holes in the wall. Um but again it's a very self-injurious behaviors are a very deliberate act, and understanding the functional consequences and the whys. So, as I always tell people, make sure you have hydrogen peroxide, clean band aids, clean you know utensils if you're using something. It's not a behavior that can be immediately stopped, but it is a behavior that can be stopped, it can be reduced, and it can be uh, eradicated. Um, it's important uh, that you know that we don't penalize these individuals with with shame, but we look at if you're resorting to harming yourself and your body and and desecrating or destroying some of your part of your body, there has got to be a deeper reason. Uh, This is not, I woke up one day and I said, hey, this is a fun thing to do. I I found with a lot of these individuals, uh, whether they are suicidal or non-suicidal, are in an incredibly an incredibly um, uh, significant amount of psychological pain. And in the non-suicidal, it's really important, the non-suicidal self-injury, self-injury, that there is no int- intention to die um and i've 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 I, you know i've i've for doing this topic I, I always ask patients we know we we'll have gained self-injurious behaviors. was your intention to die and a lot of people have said a vast majority have said no and that's why i think there's a lot of viability and credibility to this disorder um <coughs> excuse me I'm julie and i are still struggling to fight off whatever we got uh, it's not COVID or anything but it's just um, the weather changes I think kind of go up and down and, uh, on the east coast so anyhow I wanted to just shed light on this because it, it it's kind of interesting to look at you know what are the things that in our field is working on and I think this this really this category deserves um, attention, just like the disorder, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder was a much needed diagnosis, because prior to that, all we had was options defiant disorder for kids who have behavioral dysregulation. And finally, with the disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, it's really, uh, you know, it's options behaviors that are coming from depression. And it was much, much needed. And I think we need a disorder very similar to that for adults, um where the depression is coming, where the outward behavioral um, outbursts are coming from uh, an emotional state uh, versus just, you know, what we have maybe now is antisocial personality disorder or intermittent explosive disorder. So um, so I just wanted to bring this to y- your guys' attention um, because this uh, self-injurious behaviors are a very prevalent part of, of psychology, of, of psychotherapy uh, at, at, at one degree or another. So if you guys have uh, DSMs, I know a lot of people have purchased them since starting this program, and um, I think I posted a picture on on our Instagram page, which we're slowly working on, and Julie is now connected um, to the Instagram account that I set up, so she's been responding to a lot of people as well. So uh, if you direct message us, I think she's been checking a lot of that, and uh, we're still plugging away at uh instagram and the world of social media but uh it really is is a a heartfelt uh thank you and and gratitude for allowing us to come into your lives and and be a source of we perceive as hope inspiration education knowledge um uh perpetual students uh we try the best we can to help as many people as we can i i mean so many of you guys call me and i do my best to get back to as many people as i can but doing two sometimes three neuropsych evals a day and the evals i do are 50 60 70 80 90 pages sometimes uh and i've never used a cookie cutter approach and never will um i just take a lot of pride in in what i do and uh you know People are complex, but you know in diagnostics and neuropsychology, we have the tools people to, to give people answers with definitive certainty and great uh, exp- explanatory reasons, uh, <clears throat> merely than just a summation of what the diagnosis is. So as I always say, please, if you have not got one, get a neurosechel, or if you're with somebody in relationship with or your child or whatever, get a neuropsyial. It's really the only way to know what it is. Uh, otherwise, you know, Julie I think has said it before, she she chases symptoms. and yeah, I think a lot of therapists chase symptoms. That's no one's fault, it's just In a world of managed care, in a world of insurances, you know, you only get so many, you get 45 minutes to an hour where I get several hours and uh, have, you know, norm-based assessments and tests that are able to provide the necessary information to give the diagnostic clarity that is so crucial uh, from a psychotherapeutic perspective, from a psychopharmacological perspective. So uh, continue to reach out. you can get a hold of me at uh, through psychology today. You can get a hold of me um, at psychology unplugged at outlook.com. And you could follow us on Instagram at psychology underscore unplugged underscore um. Uh, like I said on Instagram so Julie and I are going to be uh, seeing Bruce Springsteen in Boston uh, I booked a trip back home to Chicago to see him at Wrigley Field so I'm mean, going to get back home uh, in the middle of summer and August in Chicago is incredibly humid so uh, it'll be fun to go back and I'll get a chance to go see uh, my father's grave which I have not yet seen because of the pandemic and uh, Something I've wanted to do for a long time anyway, so and see my mom as well. But uh I know they're a better place, but it's just something that I need to do for myself and Julie wants to as well. So we'll be back in Chicago in August. Um so I know we're also gonna be going out to other places that people have asked us to come and do trainings and and um seminars. So really appreciate that. And that, that's that been kind of fun uh, doing a lot of Zoom calls. So if different organizations want to want to do like clinical supervision or want to do a training or do, um, you know, just talk to us. Uh, we're more than happy to do that or come out or travel. Um, you know, again, like I said, we're two people. We we cover the the three major fields of diagnostics and testing and therapy and medication. So, um, if we could be of help or service in your town or community or country, um, we will be more than happy to make ourselves available, uh, for whatever services that you guys think would be necessary. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, be well. Um, and I will talk to you guys then. All right. Bye guys.